0: Stealing in as relapse comes up above the din. It's hard to know. Episode
1: 421 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Winchester, Massachusetts. I'm Nate Mavis. With me from Las Vegas, Nevada is Carlos Welch. Yes. And from Owings Mills, Maryland. Yeah.
0: Uh, Catonsville, Maryland.
1: No. Catonsville, Maryland. Uh, yeah, right. Andrew Brokus. I'm uh, a little rusty, but it's great to be back. How are you
0: guys?
2: <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm happy, but I think in particular the ladies are thrilled to hear uh, Nate Mavis's rich baritone on the mic again. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it is great to be back. I miss doing this.
2: So I think uh, to the extent that we have an agenda for today, uh, we we thought we would sort of catch Nate up on um, everything that's changed in poker and poker strategy in particular in the last two years. Uh, but first, Nate, is there anything you want to catch us up on in terms of what's changed in, uh, in Mavis land in the last two years?
1: Um, I have three kids now, so that's exciting. Um, and yeah. We were recording this on November 1st, the day after Halloween, and boy, I was not really a big Halloween guy, but it turns out when you're a six-year-old kid, Halloween is awesome. (laughs) Uh, And like, it was like very fun to uh, live that through my oldest son's uh, eyes yesterday. So yeah, uh, like basically my life these days is family stuff, and then my work, I'm still a software engineer. Um, and then basically my main hobby these days is trivia. i uh, so that's, which we, we can, which we can talk about. I think it's like slightly interesting from a, uh, hobbyist slash poker transition perspective, but like what's relevant, what's most relevant to this conversation is that I have not played a hand with poker for money in coming up on four years now, since January, 2020. Um, I haven't thought about poker in any sort of structured strategic way. From probably about spring of 2020 until an email thread that we had like two days ago so like (laughs) i'm like so like what's the like i'm just totally making this up and i'm curious how far poker has come without me because like one thing that's always funny is um opponents who mistake their their how long in years they've known what poker is for like how good they are at poker and like i'm like keenly aware that if i were to sit down at a poker table now like by some metrics most of what we know about poker theoretically has been learned since i stopped playing poker like i'm i'm in like the more ancient hat like everything i know about poker is in the antique half of our poker knowledge (laughs) collectively um i'm not sure that's true but uh i'm way behind and i'm sort of curious what's going on
2: yeah, I mean I think that's true in in a if if you just sort of count the um the like volume of of or like the the discrete facts or, about poker strategy or something like that. But because of diminishing returns, I think that you know the the things that you learned during the time that you were uh studying poker seriously are largely more important than the things that have been discovered in the last 2 years. So there's been a lot of refinement. Uh I think there are like particular spots where uh you know, I would outplay you pretty severely, but I think that, you like if you were just to sit down in like a random two five game, there's a fair chance you would be the best player at the table, and if That's not, cool. you would be the second. Yeah, best player. I sometimes
1: imagine like what I would do if I went down to Foxwoods on some random day, and it's like it's slightly morbid because the stud tables are sort of going away. As like when I first started playing, it was like fifty year olds and up. And then when i stopped playing it was like 70 year olds and up and uh yeah so yeah, as, as i say a lot of them have uh, gotten called to the main game i believe is the is the preferred euphemism there <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. uh, if, if one to five studs still existed i would i would really love to jump in one of those games but yeah two five would be my my uh you know get back into the, the warm waters of poker game
2: yeah, that what I can't speak to. Although I imagine it's true that you know quite a lot has been learned about non Holdem game strategy. Probably, I mean, probably the the, the delta there is larger actually, uh, but I don't know, you know. It's not something that I've stayed on top of it as much. But I would guess that you know the the um, because less was already known about those games on the one hand, like there's not a readily available, like a PO solver or GTO wizard sort of thing for those games. But I think that for the people who are playing them seriously, they do have that, those tools <laughs> they are just not sharing them. And uh, so I think that like, if you, if I don't even know who to name as, as the Benny Glazer, I guess like the top, like mixed game players in the world. Um, I think that they have probably learned more about their games in the last two years than yeah. we have about ours.
1: A very interesting and be totally irrelevant to me because like, those games for me it's just like all about who's playing half their hands and you know whatever stud eight or better stud stud high low no qualifier you know like it's just um like i was never like i remember talking to vanessa selbst in college and like she was just so much smarter than i was in a lot of ways including just all these like sort of little calculating things like i could never be a blackjack pro all this like technical mixed game stuff, it's like oh, remember all the dead cards and like do all these like sort of complicated chains of logical inference on the fly. Like that's has never been and will never be where I get any of my like advantage against poker against other good players. Like it's really just like what games are popular, sort of what heuristics can I figure out, and uh, how can I spot the best games. But um yeah, are, are are people doing that? Like, do you have any sense of whether there's like a mixed game or like what the non-hold'em action would be? like at foxwoods these days or even at the bellagio for that matter
2: uh foxwoods i have no idea i think it's i mean i don't really know bellagio either i i think i mean bellagio i think is certainly your best bet for um for finding a mixed game certainly at a mixed game other than like super high state like i have no idea where you'd find like a 500 a thousand mix but you know for for the stakes that you'd be looking to play i imagine Bellagio would be your best bet um with with whatever outdated knowledge i have like that's where i would send you uh i think that I mean the, the impression because we had um Ari Engel on here not too long ago and uh he's been playing a fair amount of of mixed um and, you know, playing mixed tournaments when he can and uh, I think trying to play some online as well I, I got the sense that he was um he was pretty satisfied with what was available to him um in particular with I, I think it seems like there have been a little bit of an uptick in like, mixed game tournaments or at least like non hold'em game tournaments being offered at uh different i mean there's just been an increase in like poker series in, in general and uh, obviously an explosion of casinos uh so yeah i, I think your odds are not that bad cool Bodogari, he's still around
1: <laughs>
2: yeah he's he's still crushing he he estimated it and i think we agreed that he's played uh more live poker tournaments than anyone in the world that's
1: Probably right. Like, who else even would? Like, 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 why would you do that? Like,
2: why would
1: you? Not totally clear why he does, but
0: he just became the uh, number one on the uh, circuit ring list with uh, 16 circuit rings.
1: Wow. Wow. What are you up to, Carlos? Like, what are you doing these days poker wise? Like, still crushing it online, I imagine?
0: No, getting my ad. Uh, well, depend on what you mean by crushing it, I'm definitely getting it in great several times, uh, at will. Uh, but the holding part I'm kind of struggling with right now. So results wise this year hasn't been great, but, um, I agree with Andrew that even being rusty, if you jump into the games right now, you will definitely be one of the better players at the table because with all the new poker knowledge available, uh, the average opponent that I'm playing against is not getting, uh, better. So, um, for that reason, I'm still able to, uh, crush theoretically, got a lot of gal fund Bucks, uh, stacked up, but don't know where I can spend those. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's one thing like about new poker knowledge that I'm also reading is that like, I feel like you have to be pretty good to even benefit from it. Like maybe in a way that old poker knowledge was not like, like some of the stuff, like, like knowing how to deviate from it would be tough like it's one thing if you memorize a shug chart like shug charts are getting better and you don't need to have a particularly nuanced understanding of things to benefit from those but like a lot of what i'm hearing are like if i read one of like andrew's awesome new articles that he's writing on the what gto wizard blog is that it Mm -hmm. uh a a mediocre or worse poker player who read those and tried to get better might not (laughs) maybe i don't know is that
2: is that is that fair? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's tricky because I don't um I don't have as strong of a sense, uh, rightly or wrongly. I mean, I, I had an idea of who was reading like. To two plus two magazine or when I was writing for for card player. And I don't know if that idea was right, but I did at least have an idea in my head of like who am I writing this for. And it's harder with the GTO Wizard blog because I'm assuming, I mean, I think certainly people who are paying for for GTO Wizard are gonna be on average more serious. Like that's a big investment of of money, at least, if not time. Um, so I think that like those people are are going to be, but I mean, there's there's plenty of like wealthy hobbyists who are still just like dabbling and they're just gonna buy GTO Wizard because it's like that thing. Um so you know, I, I I recommend it to a lot of my coaching students. I refer my you know my GTO wizard articles. You know, I refer my coaching students to to those. So I I'm always trying to like strike a balance with those. I don't know real where really to strike the balance of like how technical it should be versus how much I should be addressing what I think are kind of the. You call them like common sense objections or something like that, or just the the for a person who's been playing poker for ten years and has like poker ideas in their head that are outdated. How much do I need to like explicitly dispel those? Versus how much am I writing this for a a younger crowd who you know they didn't read David Sklansky but they just sat right down and you know they're they're um what children of the sim is the the term for this now like they're they're learning GTO first. And uh, I imagine that's going to be like an increasingly large part of the, the GTO wizard audience. So I don't know like how much I should be writing for them versus how much I should be, you know, kind of emphasizing the here's what people think is going on in this situation. And here's why that's wrong. You know, based on things that you learned 10 years ago.
1: Yeah. That's interesting. I, I notice that when you say like, Oh, you should be betting 20% of the pot here. You don't spend four paragraphs saying like, and here's why you shouldn't worry about like, what if they have a flush draw? Like, <laughs> you know, charging to draw, you know? It's like TJ Clutia would never do that. Like, it's a,
0: uh,
1: yeah. Boy, that reminds me, uh, uh, sort of trading card games are no part of my life now at all. But like five years ago, I was watching a uh, Magic the Gathering stream, some championship or whatever. And the commentator said that he had learned to read. By reading his magic cards that he knew sort of from the pictures, and it's like, oh, I feel so old <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty crazy.
2: That's incredible. <laughs>
1: yeah, and like now he's like he wasn't that young. Like he wasn't, it's <laughs> wild. Uh, I, that, that's a segue. We can start talking about what's actually new in poker.
2: Yeah. Um, I, I put together this list and I'm curious the first one. So the first thing that I put on here was uh, late registering. And I think maybe that was already a thing or something that we were talking about uh, when when you were still on, on the podcast. Was that a surprising one to you?
1: The the, the the magnitude of it. I think what you say here is it's the nuts. And like, yeah, I think
2: what <laughs> some, some of that is, is life UV considerations. Yeah.
1: I think the last time we talked, it was more like, You should seriously consider it, think about the opportunity cost, think about, you know, how fresh you're gonna be. Remember that the big EV decisions happen sort of in the late stages and being 12% better rested for those, is way more important than like, you know, winning fractions of a tiny little anti chip uh, at the beginning of the tournament. I'm not sure it was ever the case that we were at a point where we were saying oh like good players should default to late registering and it's not that close
2: yeah that's definitely how i approach playing online now um and again some of that is like acr specifically has really long late registration like they have like five hours of of late reg so starting those tournaments on time is just grueling like you play for it's like seven or eight hours to to make the money in, in those tournaments uh and you know it's not like super high stakes that i'm that i'm playing for so it's um there, it's it's not close. You know, it's it's not something that I've started doing aggressively, which is because I'm not playing live poker right now. But I don't know how I would think differently about that. For you know, the WCP main event is like such an experience in and of itself. I don't know that I really want to like skip a lot of levels off of that. But I still, I mean, even for a lot of live tournaments, it's just if you actually put a dollar value on like what is it worth for me to be sitting at the table right now you know, in in like level three of a live tournament, even if it's a fairly large buy-in, I just don't think that number is that big. And if you truly have nothing better to do and it's just like a who loves it more sort of thing, like, sure, you know, it's, you're not losing money by being there. I, I don't The tournament's soft enough. Like, there is an ICM benefit to late registering and it's pretty significant, but I still think, you know, it, if you're a, a significantly better than the field, it is worth something to be sitting there. I just don't think it's worth that money. Like, even if you want to play poker, like, you very well might make more just sitting in a 2-5 cash game or something.
1: I think one thing that's different, or at least was different as of 2020 and people always disagreed with me or at least some people always yelled at me on Twitter when I said this but I think it's indisputably true is that like the worst five percent of the field is so much better than it used to be like in 2015 and I think a lot of what people like you and me are feeling when we want to jump in the tournament at the beginning is this feeling that some people are just going to be giving away their money and are huge dogs to last four hours and like yeah, we're talking, you know, like, like several big blinds per 100 that we're getting just from like this person. And there's going to be a lot of them in any old tournament. And like, yeah, there's still a lot of people who are recreational who don't play well. But like, the, the punting, I think people just do not understand the punting that existed and like how much of it there was when people of our age were forming our intuitions about whether you need to be in your seat right at the beginning. Um, at least that's where I'm coming from. <laughs>
2: No, I think that's a great insight. It actually had not occurred to me to put it in those terms, but now that you're saying it, that feels very true to me. And I'm remembering like when I was the last time I was in Vegas in, in 2019, and I was like routinely starting tournaments, like on time or close to on time. I think at that time when I was doing, I was giving myself permission to be late. So I was not being like neurotic about, I, I my ass has to be in the chair when the, when the first card comes off the deck, but I was not routinely showing up. And some of that is like, I mean, you do get a seat when you show up on time versus if you end up on a wait list, like that's kind of a bad situation. But um. Yeah, I, I do not recall a lot of scenarios where people were just like punting 200 big blind stacks. And you're right that that did used to happen more often.
1: Yeah. And your sort of like weekend warrior type is like so much better than they used to be. Like it used to be that like showing up and playing even like fairly small stakes against like people who would have, who came from the 2 5 game in Topeka or whatever was just like, you know, like something you would walk over hot coals to get to. And it's just, it's just not quite like that anymore.
0: Nate, were you aware of, Kenny Holler was the first guy that I heard publicly talk about the ICM benefit of late regging. Was that, did that happen before or after you kind of stepped away from poker?
1: That was after, that was after. But I'm curious about this because that, that's number two on Andrew's list. Like there's an ICM, the ICM considerations early in the tournament are uh, are more important, like what's are more important than we thought. I have a, a software interest in this, which is that like I, I think some of that is that like ICM calculations are harder to do exactly earlier in a, and it's like very interesting. It's like sort of a, it, I think it sounds like a manifestation of like a very common um, um, epistemic flaw, which is sort of you know, like, like the light post fallacy, you call it. Like you look for your keys under the light post because that's where the light is. Um, and like we look for ICM considerations where we can calculate them exactly. And like A, our calculations late in the game are not as exact as we think they are. Uh, and B, just because like you run into um, yeah computational problems if you try to do an ICM calculation over hundreds of runners, like that doesn't mean that the effects aren't real at least in theory, very interesting
2: yeah I am um, I, I don't feel like I'm qualified to speak on this. Uh, the person who I know most recently who's done work for this is uh Tom Bus from GTO Wizard who we had I, I can I can link an interview that we did with him where he talks some about this and even a little video that he put together, which is a pretty quick watch that might give you more insight into how exactly he he tested this. I will say that, like, and this is not something I would say lightly. I th- I, I get a level of like algorithmic comfort from him that is, I would probably put on par with your own, like he, he seems to know what he's talking about when he, when he says these things, I I'll let you evaluate for that, that for yourself. But um, as, as a lay listener, uh, he, he next to yourself, he strikes me as one of the most knowledgeable, like software people we've had on the show.
1: You're, you're very kind. And like, I know my limits. If you're saying that you're probably right. As it happens, I do sort of maintain ICM calculator.com. So I thought specifically about like ICM calculation uh, itself. It's sort of in, it's in a sort of dormant steady state or whatever, but I still use it when I need to do an ICM calculation. Not the point. The point is like, you know, I, I sort of know my limits. I think I'm like pretty good at this stuff, but if you're impressed by that guy, he's probably better than I am. <laughs> so that's uh, um, super interesting. And he thinks that these effects are like very real.
2: Yeah. Uh, and, and that it is something that you should be thinking about from, from the beginning of the tournament. I actually thought this was going to be something that maybe you, you, like it's it's an idea that I associate with with you, um, Nate, of not that you were putting in exactly those terms, but I think just being aware that you were playing in in a tournament, um, and that you might play hands differently than you would in a, in a because I, I think that was like that's how I was thinking about it probably even like two years ago certainly more than that, um, was just like okay early stages of tournament you're just playing a cash game I'm not thinking about survival at all all I'm trying to do is maximize chips uh, I think that you and I were we're always a little there's always a little bit of light between us on that and uh. I, I'm aware of having come around to what I think of as your side of that of that issue. Yeah,
1: I mean, honestly, I think of this as an example of like epistemic cowardice because like, I think I always played that way a little bit, but when I talked about poker, like probably more so with you, like it was just something, like I don't feel that I was that much in the sway of what the cool kids were saying about poker, but like I must have been because I think I always um, had that suspicion and I don't recall ever like advocating for it like as strongly as I should have. You know what's it that Mammoth says? Like poker uh, uh, reveals, you know, your own character to you if you if you if if you let it.
0: Um, so yeah, I'm a little bit more of an epistemic coward than I thought it was. So, but. yeah, you earlier mentioned about charts getting better, and so you may not be aware of um, I see them adjusted charts. So as you get deeper into the tournament, like there's different charts based on like the percentage of the field that's left and um the biggest adjustment that you tend to see is you play a tighter range more blocker heavy so like some of the um small suited connectors and even in certain spots it might be a surprise like some of the medium pairs start to kind of drop out of your range and you play more asex and like king x suited hands and more broadway hands and so you play a tighter range and then you also play it more aggressively. So a lot less flatting and a lot uh, more uh, three betting for small sizes. So that's something that you will see if you look at the the new ICM adjusted ranges like that tends to be how tournaments should be put pl- should be played as you get closer and closer to the money and also closer and closer to the final table.
1: Yeah, it reminds me of various threads that I remember on two plus two from now over a decade ago, which is like crazy to me, but um, no super interesting. I have nothing intelligent
2: <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's actually something where I think that there used to be daylight between Carlos and me. And, and I think I've come over to the Carlos side of, of calling less often, especially from the big blind. Um, because I think Carlos being humble would always like you know we talk about like should you be calling like king five ball suit from the big blind to like a low jack open if you look at Chippy V like charts the any king you like you're getting a good price in the big blind you call it, you know, king deuce it's, it's a call against a not, not against an early position open but against a, a later position open you know those kinds of hands are calls and you know carlos is just would sort of be like oh i guess i'm just not as good as you i don't call this and like when you look at the Chippy V, EV, even to like 50% of the field remaining like not huge icm effects but you know, th- there's already started to be some ICM consideration and like those hands drop out of the big blind calling range very quickly. You know, they were, they were marginal to begin with. They were, they were very slightly profitable if you don't care about ICM. And then as soon as you do care about variants, like one of the things that's happening, of course, when you make those calls, you lose most of the time. Right? Like, and that's, that's what pot odds are. Like, okay, you're getting a really good price. You can afford to lose most of the time, but once you've got chippy or you've got ICM in there, saying like, well, the chips you lose are worth more than the chips that you're going to win, then that, trade-off doesn't sound so good anymore of like oh yeah you know most of the time you just check fold the flop but then like every once in a while you make bottom pair congratulations now you get to play a bluff catching game i see chippy loves that too like it's just icm loves that too you know just all, all the things that you're supposed to do to like realize the shreds of equity that you have in those situations are also like icm discouraged and uh yeah those like disconnected offsuit uh hands yeah, they're they're not such. I mean, I, I do still think that if you're a lot better than the person who's raising, that's a different story. So like, I think I would be defending those in a lot of live situations. But I've, I've been defending my big blind less online. And uh, Carlos, this is this is one in the W category for you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm very impressed that you can discuss this calmly after the the jack six or was it jack four thing like
2: <laughs> i actually had not made that connection so fuck you for that <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was a different era it was a different era <laughs> <You have> to... <laughs> yeah sorry wow that's like that says so much about you that like you can think about this for an extended amount of time and not think about that hand you've had a career man like if i had played that hand that hand would be like a big part of everything i ever
2: thought about in poker <laughs> good for you some of that <laughs> might be cowardice.
0: Oh, you, wow. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You know what I just realized? So we're talking about the hand from your main event? Yeah. And it was Jack 4? Uh,
2: Nate said Jack 6. I honestly don't remember it. Nate said Jack 6.
1: The last time we had this conversation, Matt Glassman popped in on Twitter and said, like, yeah, I was a backer. It was Jack 4. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh-huh. You know what? When Nate, uh, I, 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 I forgot the exact combo, but when Nate mentioned that hand, I thought about the the hand from that live stream that we refused. It was Jack mention. Deuce, yeah, 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 yeah. It Was that one? That's that, like that, Jack Deuce with the. That uh, was Jack. It, I,
1: I wrote about that. That was like the one poker conversation that I've been involved in. I, I like blogged about that hand and stuff because, like, it was crazy that more people like since Twitter existed. So like Twitter became a thing sort of after a moneymaker and so on. And there was never anything that so dominated my Twitter feed. It, it had sort of like pre, it had like pre iPhone levels of like social, like, like focality. It was like a focal event in a way that I had never seen in like sort of the modern era of communications. Uh, but it was also like fueled by modern communication. It was my whole Twitter feed uh like people at work were talking about my my high school ex-girlfriend's mother asked me about this hand (laughs) like (laughs) uh yeah uh so just everybody was talking it was super interesting and like it's like like i got in a conversation with you about one and he he said i was right by the way so like uh, you know that's i feel i feel good about that um yeah so i i i I took it as an opportunity to uh, exercise my poker thinking skills but not in any strategic way just in like a you know, sort of like an overall basing reasoning way. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that well.
0: Okay, so this is officially the first bit of interest and in research I've paid to that hand. As I just looked it up and it was Jack Four offsuit. So that's hilarious to me that that's also the same hand that Andrew played in the main event. Because cause when you mentioned a hand, I instantly thought about the one from the live stream. I wasn't even thinking about the, the one from Andrew. But if those are like, I'm curious. Now I want to go back. I wish I wish there was a way to check the suits to see if Andrew had the same suits as well. No, that,
1: that, no, they aren't even the same rank. And Andrew's must have been jack sticks because I checked this at the time because I wanted to needle Andrew about it. And
0: I knew I couldn't. So that's <laughs> <laughs> Gotcha. So in either case, it was like two pips of a blow. Andrew's yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was, it was an even
1: number. It was an even number. It was a yeah. All right. So we're, we're, where are we on this list here? Number three.
2: Yeah, number three on here. This is another one that I thought might not be so surprising to you. Um, but it's definitely something that I I find myself doing more often is making big shoves pre-flop. Uh I think once upon a time I had a rule of like not shoving more than 10 big blinds. I mean, that's going way back. That's like 10 years back, but you know, not shoving more than 10 big blinds. That went up to 15 at some point. Now it's like not unheard of. You'd see me open shoving 20 big blinds, jamming 30 or 40 big blinds over a min raise It's not like all the time, but you know, in a in a Sunday, like both of those things probably happen at least once uh and that's that's new for me like those those spots exist and i wouldn't have thought that they did
1: yeah this is like an everything old is new again moment for me because i think people were doing that like eight years ago and then i associate with carlos like some work that was an assassinato or somebody did and it's like no you can race world even down to like nine big lines or something and like so you know, it was like, you know, in 2005, the 10 big blind rule was really common. And then like some smart players tried to go down from that. But like, you know, in the early aughts, like there was definitely a cool kid thing of like open shoving more and more and bigger and bigger, I think. Um, so I think I missed the whole last trough of that. So I think it's everybody doing the same things, but now for different reasons and against different opponents.
0: Right? Yeah, yeah. The The assassinato thing was, uh, he there was this online player, I think he was Brazilian by the name of Passagno, who was like one of the first people that kind of like aggressively raised folded from short stacks. And assassinato studied it and created a product called Why Passagno is Right. And, and basically prove that you know this is profitable if people are like giving it way too much credence and overfolded to it. And so now with the um, use of solvers, uh, we've learned that theoretically there are spots where you go the exact opposite. So instead of raise folding from short stacks, like you could just open jam or rejam pretty big stacks over a min raise. And the one that first struck me as insane was I was studying um, Ben CB's Raise Your Edge course, and there was a spot where you rejam 40 bigs with Queen Jack suited over over an open. Like, that one caught me off guard. But now, just thinking about it, my guess is, and this is something I think I've heard Andrew say, that was something that um, he showed was profitable or optimal at a time before we started adjusting the charge for ICM. So that probably wouldn't be a thing um, later in the tournament when you're taking ICM to account, but early on when ICM is less of a factor, yeah, there's definitely spots where you know you just rejam forty bigs with Queen Jack suited, which is uh, pretty pretty interesting. Cool.
2: And I think importantly, like this is this is not inconsistent with raise faulting off of short stacks. You know, what what this often looks like is you have a more polar range that, like, so let's say you have like a. a even off of like 12 big blinds. Say. You know, you have a more polar range that's um, min-raising. And some of those are really strong hands, like, you know, your aces, your ace-king, your queens, where you actually want to induce shoves. Like you want more action. So you're, you're raising small with those. And then you have some very weak hands that uh, are either like not quite good enough to shove or at least like maybe a little bit more profitable to play as min-raise folds rather than getting your entire stack in. And then it's stuff in the middle. So often like smaller, medium pairs will fall into this category. Suited Broadway hands, like Carlos was mentioned, where they're not good candidates for raise folding because they're not so strong that you want to induce more action, but they're also not so weak that you really want to be like folding them to a shove after you've opened with them. So you're kind of jamming like the like middle of of your range. And that middle can be quite small, especially once you factor in ICM. Like, I think there are some spots, like the one Carlos was describing, you're 30 big blinds say, and you're facing a raise from like the cutoff and you're in the big blind. It may be that, you know, you're you're, um, calling or making a small three bet with like, 60% of your range and three percent of hands are shoving like it, it, it's by far the the least frequent thing that you do but there are a few hands like but they're pure shoves. like they, there are a few hands that are just like this is just better as a shove ace king off suit or ace queen off will often, often fall in that category as well um which i've I mentioned this a few times on the show but it truly is one of the funniest things that i've heard carlos say which is a high bar um where we were talking about how you know a long time ago that was like a really fishy thing to do right just like shove ace king pre-flop because you're afraid of playing post-flop and so everyone associated it with fish and then the sovereign comes along and uh and carlos says in like a robot voice i want to see five cards." yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I actually just pulled up a chart now and this is even i see adjusted so with 50% of the field left 30 bigs effective um low, low jack raises for a min raise small blind can jam king jack suited king ten suited ace queen suited and pocket nines. Like those are hands that make up its 30 big blind jamming range over a low jack open. And this is even with half the field gone. So it's, it's taken into account. I see him.
1: That's like also amazing because, like, it's like even like doubly sort of fish from 2007-ish. It's like, no, 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 it's not just ace-jack that I don't want to play after the flop. It's also pocket-binds through jacks. <laughs> like It's also pocket
2: Yeah, but it's like, I mean, and, and they're not even entirely wrong. Like, it's, just, I mean, it's, it's not just like, oh, they were doing it for the wrong reasons. Like it's literally the same reasons. Like, this is a really hard hand to play after the flop. I want to maximize the fold equity. And, like, and so, I, I mean, I think that's the other important thing is, even when you look at ICM charts and you see a lot of these shubs fall off, I still think shoving is not that much worse. And so if you are do find yourself, I and mean, I guess that this is like kill uh strategy, right? Of like some really tough player raises your big blind and you're like, oh, uh, the solver prefers a small three-bet here. Like the solver prefers calling here. Like shoving is often not that much worse. And if the person is a lot better than you are, <laughs> just shove, like fine.
1: But the solver's not wetting its pants right now. And I am. So like... Yeah, that's like... <laughs> yeah. It's like... I'm yeah, you, just winning the anties, so.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, you, and you mostly see it from <laughs> out of position, and so yeah. that's what it's, it's like going to be yeah. much difficult to play whether you flat or make a smaller three bet and get called.
2: This is, um I mean, it's it's not really a tangent. I think it's squarely in what we want to talk about, but it's, it's not on the list. But this is a conversation that I also had with Nate. Um, kind of the, the immediate impetus, we've been talking about doing something like this, but the immediate impetus was a hypothetical that Tommy Angelo posted on Twitter, the results of which I think blew both of our minds, which was, uh, you know, if you're playing a heads-up match, you're 300 big blinds deep, and both players are forced to open a 100% of hands on the button, and they're opening for a four big blind raise. Uh, and now the big blind, you have a choice of either you have to call every hand or you have to fold every hand. Uh, Which of those would be better if if you're the player? So you know your opponent's opening the entire deck, they're opening for four big blinds, you can either call everything or fold everything. And I came into this very convinced that the answer was going to be fold everything when you're 300 big blinds deep, that playing out of position is a huge disadvantage. And that there was some stack depth, obviously, where that's not true. Like if the four big blind were a shove, then you know it's just all in for four big blinds. Of course, you'd want to call everything from the big blind. So it's just a question of like, where do you draw that line? I thought it was going to be like somewhere in the 60 to 80 big blind neighborhood. Uh, And then I looked at it on uh, using a custom simulation on GTO Wizard. And it's hard to prove this definitively because you can't do a report and look at like what would your ev be across all flops the way you can if for like the pre-solved spots on there but um i could not find a flop where the big blind had uh, sorry the small blind the, the player who was in position uh, where they were going to have more than uh, 4.5 big blinds in ev uh, and 5 was the the magic number where it would be better off for the um, for the big blind to fold so it was like it turned out to be not even close that as far as the solvers concerned you're better off calling from the big blind um i got the impression that this was uh very surprising for you as well Nate.
1: yeah crazy it was totally great like if you'd made me guess i would have i would have you know because four big mines is kind of big i would have thought like you know like 100 maybe you know ish but like no 300 I, I was i was really gobsmacked like how can the position be worth so little like the pots inflated like you know, like, the worst 30% of hands are, like, really bad, right? <laughs> those are very, very, very hard to play. Like, I thought, like, you would just get crushed too hard with those um, to make it worth it. Yeah, I was shocked.
0: Yeah, I bet you, like, some... You know, heads up expert would probably have guessed his answer a lot better because like like when you say Nate, like I have the same visual reaction you you, you have to like the bottom thirty percent of hands, but that's just because we're not used to playing the bottom 30% of hands. If we were like heads up players, then I think it what... would
1: I wasn't heads up. This probably came from like I was a heads up. Heads up was my regular game circa 2013 through 2015. It's like I played time and like again, that was a long time ago, and I was playing like 200 to 400 and or whatever so like you know like not micro stakes but also not like high stakes like you know or yeah and i thought it was a place where i had an edge on my opponents is like realizing that there's a difference between jack seven and jack three you know um but maybe yeah i was i was shocked like yeah you have to play at the bottom 30 percent, but like the worst hands are like really really bad i don't know <laughs> yeah yeah
2: the the reason why I thought of this right now is that um part of what Tommy stipulated is that both players are equally skilled uh and so th- this relates to our previous conversation about like calling from from the big blind in more like normal tournament situations is you know so when we say that like both players are are equally skilled does that necessarily mean that both players are going to e- even if you know neither of them is going to play a perfect solver strategy but like if neither of them if if their mistakes like are kind of canceling each other out so they should kind of end up getting whatever the solver predicts would be the EV even if they were both playing perfectly um or is it the case that like for two equally skilled players they will have the same EV on the the button um but that there's sort of a disproportionate advantage to being out of or disadvantage to being out of position so um you know overall like if they're taking turns uh with sometimes in position sometimes out of position they're going to have the same ev in the game over the as long as they play the same number of hands in position versus out of position so they're equally skilled in that sense but If we compare the results to salver results, whichever one of them is out of position, they're going to do worse than what a salver would predict. And whichever one of them is in position is going to do better because it is harder to play from out of position, even after you account for both people having equal skill. It's just harder to... Intuit correct play from out of position. There are far more mixed strategies, uh, which are you know, basically impossible for humans to get right. Whereas in position, it's just far more likely that you're going to have clear incentives, just like this hand is just better to do this with it. That happens much more often in position than out of position. And basically every time that I see a solver, I see like a mixed strategy in a solver, that's um, that's a point that you're not going to play perfectly as a human. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what a mixed strategy is. Is like, there's no good option here, is what a mixed strategy is really saying to you. And so the more that you have those like no good options, option here things those are places where you're going to perform worse than than your opponent even after you account for being of equal skill which is another reason to just not defend your big blind so much
1: yeah yeah well said
2: well said next thing on our list here uh mystery bounties so i've only played one of these um i don't think carlos has a ton of uh familiarity with it either but um I know that they are the hot thing. Like this is uh, sort of taking the poker world by storm, and you can imagine why, right? It, it, there's an extra element of gambling to these. Um, but uh, do you even know, Nate, what what exactly a mystery bounty tournament is? I
1: don't. I, I don't know what a mystery bounty tournament is. I'm guessing. Like like if you knock somebody out, you have to spin a wheel or something like but, but.
2: yeah, I think often it's done drawing an envelope. And they, they do this publicly uh because there's some really big you know, for for you know big big tournaments and big buy ins and stuff, there could be a million dollar bounty. So um, you know, there are people who are drawing uh you know, like drawing envelopes and, and they're making a whole rigmarole around it of, you know, are they gonna draw the, the million dollar one? Come on up to the front. Uh it's a but the other thing that's like strategically different about them, because
1: like I, I mean, I'm always the one sort of saying that poker started as a cheating game and it's full of cheats. And the only reason that it was ever not full of cheats is that like we put all these like really rigid protocols into place to keep that from happening. But we don't really have a historic protocol for like making sure that somebody doesn't know where the million dollar envelope is. like, 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 like logistically, like literally, what is happening when somebody is choosing an envelope that might have five dollars or a million dollars in it? And how do we know that that's all, yeah, like like what exactly is going on here?
0: Yeah, it's it's a good question, and and I don't having having not played
2: a live tournament,
1: I I don't know.
0: Yeah, yeah, like it's so this is so great to get Nate's like you know, initial reaction to this thing. This is amazing. So so
1: it's, I I refer it of a nineteen
0: eighty five NBA draft, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't I know Andrew doesn't get that reference, and I don't either. I, uh, I like, don't, but
2: I I can assume from context what happened.
1: So Patrick Ewing was the consensus number one pick by far. There's a conspiracy theory, which Matt Glassman, again, often says it's like the one conspiracy theory he sort of believes. And it's like mostly crazy, but not quite that like the whole thing was because it was um, it's a lottery system then and now in the NBA for who gets the top pick. Um, The details have changed over the years, but um, all the worst teams get some number of chances to get the first pick in the draft. Um, and at that point, uh, this was a con- I think every team each of the bottom end teams had equal chances to get the first pick. So like he, so like there are all these envelopes and a big drum, and David Stern like this the the i, I guess this is bad podcasting. There's this drum with that <laughs> spun around and around. And like David like sort David Stern, like the then commissioner, controversial figure. He had reached in and like fished around Dick and picked the like, New York Knicks. And the uh, the conspiracy theory is that it was rigged. Um, so that uh, uh, this massively popular player would go to a big market team, which would be very good for the league. And if you look at it, I think like it, like it sort of looks like the, the the corner of the envelope is bent. Maybe there are also theories about like a frozen envelope, so that it was cold and that he could. Yeah, so it's like it's like pretty nutty, but it's like yeah, I don't know. Like like some of that video footage is pretty. I don't know. It's enough to make you think in a in an environment that's full of people who are willing to cheat and where people routinely cheat for like ones to hundreds of dollars i'm a little bit curious about the million dollar envelope algorithm here but never mind
2: no that, that, that's a very important point I'm, I'm glad that you raised that um so the other thing that's like strategically significant about these because otherwise if it was just like a regular bounty tournament except the the size of the bounty was randomized that wouldn't really be that different right like the value of the the ev of the bounty would still be the same it would vary a little bit depending on whether or not like the big ones had been picked but what makes the mystery bounty significant what enables them to have this rigmarole when someone wins one is that they're not in play from the start of the tournament Uh, often they come into play once you make the money sometimes they come into play even later than that so the beginning of it plays more or less like a regular poker tournament And there's even a point, and I should say here, I'm relying mostly on research that I've seen uh, Dr. Kamikaze and Dara Dara Okarni do, uh, because again, I'm not terribly familiar with these myself, but it makes a lot of sense the way I've heard them explain it, um, that there's actually a point where it essentially functions like a reverse bubble, where if you don't already have a big stack... And you don't cover people, the bounties are worth so much because none of them have been paid out. Like, unlike a normal bounty prize pool, none of that money has been paid out. So, when you finally get into it, like the regular prize pool has been paid out, like you're already in the money. So, a lot of the regular prize pool have been paid out, but the entire bounty prize pool is still there waiting to be won. So, having a lot of chips so that you're in a position to try to win those bounties is really worth a lot. So if you don't have a lot of chips and you don't cover people, it's correct for you to gamble and try to accumulate chips, even to the point where you're doing like negative chip EV things to try to run up a stack. Conversely, if you already have a big stack, you don't want to lose that big stack because you're already in a position to win those bounties and so it's actually correct for you to be more risk averse and which is the opposite of how tournaments usually play right generally if you have a big stack you're not as concerned about holding on to your chips but uh when when you cover people you want to preserve your ability to cover people for when the bounties kick in
1: that's awesome i also can see why a lot of people like these tournaments it's like so like recreational players a lot of them really like satellites i think they like the idea of equal prizes for everyone like the combination of what i think it combines what recreational players like about satellites <clears throat> other than the ability to play a bigger a tournament that's irresponsible for them to play. <laughs> uh, uh, and sort of what they like about regular tournaments it's like got the sort of like if you make it this far you get in some sense an even-ish play out or, or at least like you get what may feel like an equal opportunity to gamble for the million dollars but you also still get a chance to win a million dollars instead of like 10 x or 20 extra buying Yeah, uh, sounds like fun i don't know like i find myself wanting to play one so um <laughs> except for
0: the whole like
1: <laughs> maybe they're rigged but
0: uh <laughs> yeah it's definitely that that element of gamble where everyone feels like they're the luckiest player in the room so if mm-hmm. they could just make it to the bounty period, and they could just yeah. get one bounty. They're probably going to pull the million dollar bounty. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. It, it, it definitely feeds into that, you know, lottery ticket buying aspect of human nature.
1: So, like, the tournament doesn't stop at every elimination. It's not like everybody's sweating every one of these. Like, how, how? Again, just like the logistics of it are. Like, are people like anti-sweating? Do people get a chance to like root against everyone? Like, that's like a sort of a fun scenario I can imagine. Like knocking somebody out and like the whole room rooting for me not to get a big envelope.
0: Yeah.
2: yeah. I don't think it stops, but I think that they are live. Um, you know, there, there's like a person, the tournament director, I guess, you know, at, at a microphone in the middle of the room and uh, as you eliminate well, no, I guess, cause you're not leaving the seat.
0: No, they do. do like they? you can like, so you buzz somebody and well, first of all, these are often two day tournaments and the boundaries don't kick in until the second day. So once you're on the second day, you bust somebody and um, you get, I don't know what they give you, but they give you something to indicate that you busted somebody. And then once that happens, at any point, you can leave your seat and go over to the wheel to kind of pull in an envelope. And when you do, the tournament director is announcing that somebody's pulling an envelope uh, I don't think they say the name, but that would be kind of cool if they did because that way you can decide if you want to sweat or anti-sweat the person. But you can always just look over and see if like, oh, it's that asshole. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and and so they pull the envelope and the term announcer announces which envelope they pulled. And so you will get that like, you know, sigh of relief that the big bounty is still available or like, they're like, oh, like somebody got the big bounty. And the other thing that you would like, uh, Nate, is... The envelopes kind of uh, sometimes they're like open from the side, and and so like when they pull it out, there's a sweat because you you want to see how many zeros are on your number, yeah. and then yeah, like that's
1: great.
0: yeah, looking for like okay, how many zeros are after the comma? How many zeros are before the comma? Like yeah, yeah, like if you like find some of the videos, um, uh, especially at the wind the wind does a great job of these. Like there's some pretty cool videos online.
1: Yeah, that sounds good. It's like it's like uh, it's like squeezing. Like squeezing your cards in a low ball game, but it's not. But it doesn't slow down the game and ruin a deck of cards, so that's cool. Exactly. That's, uh, yeah, that's great. Also, I would pay money for a live stream of one of these things happening at Foxwoods. Like, I'm sure the regulars <laughs> are different, but the types are all sort of the same. And like hearing like people who all know each other and play with each other sixty hours a week or whatever, like yeah, a good, good production. I would pay money for a live stream.
0: My favorite one is there's this guy that won like a hundred K bounty at the win. And his reaction was he had this, this reaction that he got caught doing something he wasn't supposed to be doing. And like, he didn't look happy at all. (laughs) He kind of like, he he looked like a kid who got caught with a hand in the cookie jar. It's all, you just won a hundred thousand. And he's like, like <laughs> it's like, like maybe he wasn't supposed to be playing poker that day. Yeah, right. He's gonna have to explain this being influx of money. Like he was thinking like it best I'll probably make cash and like I can hide that, but can't hide this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah. That, that's
2: such a like degenerate poker player thing to like play a tournament that you can't afford to win. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, like the satellite to the event that you can't actually play. And I didn't think I was gonna win. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so nate i don't know if you need to go in a couple minutes or if not if you want to uh, I, I, I got some extra time yeah i'm good okay so even so i don't think we have time to talk about four more items so i'm curious which of these uh stands out as most interesting to you of, of the ones that we haven't covered yet
1: multi-way solvers are still rudimentary but we understand a lot more about multi-way strategy now small bets are typically correct especially out of position on most swaps no one player should bet terribly often super interesting we've talked a bit over email about this like the the small bet size thing makes intuitive sense to me now, I think, but I think would be very shocking to 10 years ago, Nate, or something. Um, yeah, super interesting. Discuss.
2: Yeah. I actually yeah. specifically remember um, the, the first time that this made – I already knew this was a thing that, that better players are doing, is betting small and multi-way pots, and I didn't have a good like common-sense explanation for why. And I remember – this is when I was staying with you, Nate, in 2019, and I was playing at the um, – the Boston casino. And uh, I went to the the bank to get some cash. And I was listening to uh, Chris Cruck on uh, Jen Shahadi's podcast talking about a multiway pot that he played. And the explanation he gave, which I, I now have a second explanation for this as well, but the explanation that he gave, which is still like the main way that I think about this, is that one of the things that's happening in a multiway situation is that there, like, there's essentially like a squeezing effect on the person who's stuck in the middle. So if I'm betting into the two of you and like the way that we're arranged on the Zoom screen right now, like Carlos is on my immediate left and then Nate is to his left and my right. So if if I'm betting and I bet a fifth of the pot, so Carlos is, he's getting six to one, but he can't just make a calling decision based on his pot odds because he still has Nate sitting behind him who could potentially raise, or even if Nate overcalls, right? That's bad for, for Carlos. And so, you know, I'm getting fold equity on my bet that's above and beyond the amount of money that I risked. I'm leveraging the risk of Nate sitting behind Carlos and I'm getting extra fold equity from Carlos. So, my small bets are doing more work. And I think that, that that's kind of a static effect. It doesn't scale that much with the size of my bet. So, the smaller that I bet, the more that I'm, um, Leveraging that that effect, and and the the greater the delta is between like how much I'm risking versus how much fold equity I'm I'm getting for that risk.
1: It's interesting. I associate those plays with uh, no limit draw. I remember reading that. I think there's actually something about this in Super System, maybe where like if um the if there's a player in the middle who's marked with like a mediocre made hand, you know, mostly because like maybe they didn't draw in a five card draw game, but they also aren't betting a lot. And if there's a player still to act who did draw, like with obviously a pretty good draw, the first player to act can bet and quote unquote shoot through the player in the middle who's just like in a bad spot because I should have something and the player behind might have hit his draw and like clearly like you can't have much like you can't really bluff raise to try to knock the fair like that. It, it, it's just a bad spot and the person in the middle is uh, yeah, just can't stand a bet very often. Um, I don't know how much of what's going on in Hold'em is the same, but it kind of feels similar.
2: Yeah. The um the other thing that that, that I mentioned to you in, in email, which feels relevant here, is that I think some of this, especially for multi-way pots, is No Limit players rediscovering things that have been known to players of other games for a long time. And it was just that we, it's, it's some combination of you didn't play as many multi-way pots in No Limit as you do in, in other games. And we were accustomed to using bigger sizes and no limit hold'em. So as we start talking about making these bets of like 20% of the pot, it does start to look more like a limit game. Whereas like if, if I'm only betting 20% of the pot, and then if Carlos is going to check raise me, he's going to check raise like 33% of the pot, Like this is starting to look more and more like limit hold'em. And so maybe our strategies also should look more and more like limit hold'em. And one of the things that that means um, is that you're... like The other reason for using small sizing is that you're not generally making like airball bluffs in three and four way pots, it's just really hard in theory to make multiple people fold. And I know you made the point, and I think this is right, that if people are playing badly, like among other things, just if they have overly wide ranges for seeing the flop in the first place, maybe you actually can. Like if both of you guys are just like 60% V-pipping buffoons, uh, maybe I can just see that my entire range into both of you when you call me preflop because you just missed the flop so often. But if we're talking about people with like well-constructed ranges, I'm not even as a or i have a stronger range than, than you guys do it's still unlikely that i'm just going to be able to like bet once and have that be so profitable like with any two cards the way that you often can if you're just like heads up against the the big blind even though it's not the most profitable way to play it's at least like it's not you're not losing money by betting any two cards into, the, into a big blind caller very often but into multiple people you, you you very easily can be so this is the other reason why you can't really use big sizes is you can't polarize you you can't you can't bluff, you can semi-bluff, or you can bet, but like what's typically gonna happen when you bet is one person's gonna fold and one person's gonna call you. And so you don't need to be a favorite against the person who calls you because you're getting subsidized by the person who folded, right? You're, you're getting fold equity from them. But you do need like defensible equity against the person who calls you. You need a hand that can actually um, will have some equity and can realize some equity on later streets. And because the hand that calls you is going to be better on average than it is in a heads up pot, you also need like a fairly good hand to value bet. Like you can't value bet as thinly and you can't. You can't bluff as much so your range is not generally polar when you're betting you're more just like betting an equity dense range to try to deny equity to some of the people in the pot and still have a fighting chance against other people so you might polarize later you know if i bet and carlos does fold and now i'm heads up with nate and nate checks to me on the turn then i might bet bigger and polarize at that point but in a multi-way situation it's a lot less likely especially on the flop that you're going to polarize Uh, Where you will see some bigger bets sometimes is like if the flop checks around and then the turn checks around and now we're on the river and the board texture has not really changed. Uh, Carlos at this point as the first player to act should have a pretty big nuts advantage because there's not much reason for me as the, like the, the imposition player to have checked back a nutty hand on the flop end turn. So if the board didn't come down in a way that's like giving me a lot of new nutty hands, I'm not that likely to have anything all that good. And like, Nate, you could have checked some nutty hands, like hoping that you were gonna check raise me, but Carlos is the one who has the most incentive to do that. Since he's out of position to two people, his checks are most likely to contain nutty hands. So after the flop and turn have checked around, there actually are some opportunities for Carlos to even just like shove 2x pot. It's just like, well, neither one of you guys does anything. So five. Like,
0: Or 5x <laughs> yeah, pot. Or 5x pot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The solver gets really crazy when it's up against cap Ranges. Yeah. <clears throat> That's something
1: that students have. Uh, theory of poker no or not theory of poker um mathematics of poker know a lot about there's something i took away from that but never mind can i say one other thing about limit hold'em about this is like those of us who have played like many many hours of limit hold'em um you know hands that are in a tough spot when they get like six or seven to one like 20 percent of the pot or whatever um yeah think about what those are like ace high that might be good and has like three outs or maybe six outs <laughs> yeah. if it's not good you know or like queen jack on a king seven seven board it's like oh maybe i have six outs maybe i can make a straight sometimes or like you know or like um you know a, a gut shot with nothing else going for it really you know, one thing you'll notice about those hands like there are a lot of them <laughs> there <Yeah>. are, like, <laughs> and like and like one thing limit players know is that like you just hit these gross spots like all the time all the time like like those are the hands you're taking to the flop and you miss most flops. and it's like like yeah you have a lot of super automatic flop calls in limit i'm not disputing that but like you also have a lot of non-trivial decisions and that's because like there are just a lot of hands and hold them that have close decisions when they're getting six to one just that's just the structure of the game that's how it is so it's interesting that's sort of making its way into no limit
0: yeah, like the prevalence of the min-bet post-flop is something that was probably not a thing um, uh, when you last thought about No Limit. Like there's a lot of spots where you get some dry pair board, like the preferred c-bet size against the big blind is like, you know, one big blind into like a yeah. five-big blind pot or something. And like whenever you see it, especially live, it's so weird for people who don't, have experience with that because it's it's almost insulting to the average there, recreational player. There's no player. almost about it. You can see, <laughs> yeah. on the range. yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, there's um. Th- th- this feels like a very Nate Mavis point that I'm uh, about to make, but um, I have seen some question of like how much is this a relic of of the way that a lot of solves are constructed and the way that a lot of solvers work. Where if you're not careful about the options that you allow, uh, so if, for instance, if the only thing I I don't think this is. Largely true. Um, I, I think the people putting together ourselves at this point like know how to not do this for the most part. But you know, if you just do something like, oh, you're just allowed to make half pot raises, right? So you just input as, as a parameter, like all raises are half pot, um, that kind of falls apart when you're facing a 20% pot. Bet like it might be that, um, if you gave the solver the opportunity to make a two hundred percent pot raise, that half that twenty percent bet doesn't perform so well anymore. So one of the things that you're accomplishing by betting twenty percent pot is you're putting yourself in a position where you can't get blown off of your hand, and like that that kind of effect of you're not thinking about that when you're putting the solve together. But like one of the reasons why the solver like really likes small bets might just be that you put together a solve that didn't allow your opponent to make large <laughs> raises against your small bet. Um, like I said, I I think that exact example is like fairly well known by the people who are certainly someone who's like doing something for like gto wizard or something where that soft is going to be used but you know as as part of a a big software product Um, i think those are generally like well put together but i think it's a danger of running your own sim if you don't um and it's hard to know how to account for, for these things but when you get a counterintuitive output i do think it's very important to say okay The reason I'm doing this is to question my intuition. So I don't want to just be like, oh, that seems wrong. Obviously the solver is stupid and and there's a bug somewhere, which I've seen uh, in certain people publishing books that (laughs) there's a bug in the solver (laughs) because they didn't like the output. But um, I do think it's worth asking like, well, wait a minute. Are there other explanations for why this could happen? Uh, Have I given it's like once you get that that like i do think you want to poke at it a little bit when you get a counterintuitive output and try to figure out like well you know what if i allow you know for instance the the 200 200 pot check raise like does that cause the small bet to go away
1: yeah that's really cool that's really cool um nothing to add except like it's fun that like i think i did actually do this is exploit opponents who just mechanically if they're going to raise raise three extra bet and no limit like by betting sort of thirty dollars into a two hundred dollar pot, like this happens all the time at Two Five Live, where people we,
0: we call that the Jedi mind trick. That's why I started laughing a second <laughs> ago because we 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 uh, called it that on Thinking Poker Daily, which Nate was instrumental in starting, and so it was funny to think that you know we would uh, kind of uh, warn the listeners and the correspondents who submitted hands against that. And come to find out that some people have programmed the solvers to fall for that as well It's <laughs> hilarious to me.
1: <laughs> yeah, super interesting. That's just still like an underrated difference, I think, between live play and online play. It's just like online, pretty much everybody knows. Like, there's a number; it tells you how much is in the pot. And live there're just so many people, so I just have no idea how big the pot is. Like, it's, it really changes everything.
0: Um, yeah. Let let me let me say this because every time we do Thinking Poker Daily, I think of Nate because Nate was like I said instrumental in putting this thing together. And uh, during this downswing I've been on, it's been a lifesaver. And so not only should we update Nate on Poker in General, we should update Nate on Thinking Poker Daily. Uh, today we released episode seven hundred and sixty-two. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing.
1: So yeah. you wait 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 762 plus 241 is over a thousand like you realize you're over a thousand combined episodes of thinking poker and thinking poker daily right
2: was yeah cool. i guess we're pushing 1200
1: oh did i get yeah, oh, 400. 4, 421
2: was was today's episode
1: 421 241 i inverted but i'm <laughs> old yeah i'm really glad that's working out like i view this podcast as like something i did not perfectly but well and it's sort of a successful thing and i can't do it anymore because i don't for a lot of reasons. Um, I have three kids and I don't play poker. I'm a pretty bad person to host this podcast right now. Uh, but, you know, this works. Like, thinking poker daily was, like, a deeply irresponsible thing in the mindset. <laughs> but, and uh, we're just like, yeah. So um, I'm glad it's working out for you. I'm glad it's working out for you.
0: Yeah, it's working out. There, there's a uh, a term that um, I think Lee Jones coined called the uh, Mavis Threshold. And the Mavis threshold is uh, keeping the episodes to a tight 10 minutes, which you used to be very uh, adamant about. And uh when it's just Andrew and I, we get a little lax. And sometimes the episode hit 15 minutes, 20 minutes even. And uh Lee Jones likes to say we've blown through the Mavis threshold. So okay. <laughs> well, I think exactly.
2: I think there's also there, there's a Welch threshold, which is that it makes you uncomfortable if we ever do one that's less than 10 minutes. And I'm like, we do so many that are 15 or 20 minutes long, no one is gonna complain that we did an eight minute
0: episode. <laughs> yeah, eight eight to twelve is like the tight window I like. Sometimes we get like a five or no, six I, I minute I don't want to do a five minute episode. <laughs> right right but we we kind of get you know um wordy uh sometimes and it was so funny man i remember when doing the episodes with nate anytime we got close to like 10 minutes they would like just it up like, right there it up really hey, let's
1: talk about the river let's just go to the river hey guys <laughs> it's yeah like, it's like it's like when we're in las vegas and i want to jump in a game and you guys are like, like maybe just like, yeah, do, do you want to go there? Maybe just maybe just subway. How about subway? Like, maybe just like, <laughs> you know, they'll bring you food to the table. You know, we can just do that,
0: <laughs> <laughs> right,
2: right? I guess it, it was probably your your last trip to to Vegas. The um was it was it half an hour from uh, wheels on the ground to Nate has cards in the Colossus?
1: I I have the number on Twitter somewhere. It may have been thirty four from touching down to cards in my hand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was 2019, yeah, 2019. That would have been my last, yeah, my last trip to Las Vegas. And I, I would very much enjoy it. But like, I, boy, poker, that does not fit my life. Like internet poker is not a thing for me right now. Hires long chunks of time. I have none of those right now. So really true pleasure. It's, a, it's an honor to be on the show. Thank you very much. No, it's, it's great uh, to
0: have you back yes yes care. <laughs> bye. okay bye guys Devotion of a car, the light of the fair passage of a bill, and who will sign us into law. I know you won't